0: Let's open up tonight to Genesis chapter 3 as we get the lights on for all of you. Genesis chapter 3. And tonight we're just going to cover this uh, one chapter. And that will likely end the pace in the book of Genesis of doing one chapter at a time. And then next week, when we get into chapter 4, we're at least going to cover chapter 4 and 5, and likely we'll even get into chapter 6, a little bit at least, and then uh, we'll be not necessarily off to the races, but we'll be moving at a quicker pace, uh, at least as we go through the book of Genesis. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand in the air, and we'll get one to you. But uh, Genesis chapter 3, a very important passage in Scripture. And just to remind you, at this point in the book of Genesis, after reading and studying the first two chapters of Genesis, all is well. <laughs> you know, God has made his creation. It is beautiful. And out of his infinite love, God has created, God has made the world. And he's put his people that he's made in his image uh, on earth, man and woman and they're in love with each other they're in love with God God is with them they're with him they're with each other everything is all good after these first two chapters of the book of Genesis and in the garden that God made for them the man and the woman existed and everything was good and the overarching uh command there in the garden was found in chapter 2 verse 16 and 17. Just as a recap, God had said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This verse, or these verses, loom over the events of chapter 3. Uh, we know that this command, this this prohibition, if you will, that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, They will eat of that tree in this chapter, and along with it will come catastrophic results. You see, as good as everything was, man and woman still had freedom. They were free to obey God, or they were free to rebel from God. They were not prisoners to God's desires. They had the ability to disobey him. They were not automatons. They were not robots, human-like machines that could only obey God. No, they could obey God, but they could also disobey their designer and their maker. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was more than just a test for their obedience, but also a test for their trust. If they ceased to believe that God had given them everything that was good, if they ceased to trust God, God's nature that God had given them everything that they needed they stopped believing God's nature then they would inevitably eat that forbidden fruit because they would have believed that God is holding out on us there is something better out there that he has kept from us in other words the second they began to doubt and then believe that their doubts were valid as they doubted God's goodness they would eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil So what this means is that to eat the forbidden fruit was a statement that God, His provision, and His ways were not enough and that they needed more. But to cease from eating or refrain from eating, to say it better, would mean that they trusted God and that they believed that God had given them everything that they needed. Okay, now you guys know the story. We live in a fallen and broken world, so you know what happens in chapter three already. Uh, You know, spoiler alert (laughs) If, if you don't know this. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At some point, we don't know how long, it doesn't say, at some point after creation, they grew suspicious of God. And they felt that he was holding out on them, and so they ate the fruit that he had forbidden. Okay, but to get to that point, a nudge was required, and the serpent would provide that nudge. So let's start out reading in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the The garden. Now let's stop there for a moment. Okay, this section starts with a serpent, a crafty serpent, it says, who is talking to the woman. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second, but let me first point this out to you. In all of creation, there was no one higher than human beings, right? God made everything else. The pinnacle of his creation was man and woman. And they were to have dominion over all of God's creation. They were to take the raw material that God had designed, they were to develop it, they were to express dominion over the earth. They were above everything. The only one above them was God himself. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because when the serpent tempted them, the temptation came not from above them, but beneath them. In other words, to submit to this serpent would bring them down rather than bring them up. It would demean them rather than elevate them. And you need to know this because temptation always works this way. All temptation is designed to demean you, to make you less than who you should be, less human, to frustrate your divine purpose, and to pull you down rather than to exalt you into the place of dominion that God has originally designed you for and that Christ can bring you back into by his blood. But so often we lose that potential and that dominion through succumbing to temptation. Okay, the Bible, though, spends zero time explaining this whole talking snake, you know, episode. It just kind of says it. Eve doesn't act shocked, you know, like, what in the world? A talking snake? I can't imagine. So the suggestion is, is that perhaps this was a perfectly natural event to her at that stage of human experience and existence. And, of course, the temptation that many experience at this point is to declare that Genesis 3 and maybe the surrounding chapters even of the book of Genesis are merely art, or fairy tale, or fable that God is redeeming for his purposes. But the Bible doesn't treat this episode like a fairy tale. It treats it like an actual historical event that occurred that brought in great destruction and agony and brokenness and depravity into the human world and species. So to treat this portion as fiction means you must treat the whole section, I think, in the same way. I don't think we can give it the fictional treatment. So I'll be the first to admit it's unusual to have a serpent speaking to this woman, but the Bible presents this event as factual. You know, the reality, if you really think about it, is if you can um, embrace Genesis 1, verse 1, which I think is totally logical to believe in, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe Genesis 1, verse 1, then talking snakes and floods and the great fish swallowing Jonah. They're like no problem for you if you can believe that there is a God who can speak the world as we know it into existence. Okay, But we're not given much more information as to how this whole conversation worked. What the Bible does tell us is that the devil somehow was using this serpent. It doesn't come out and say in Genesis 3, the devil, but later in Scripture, the devil is referred to as the ancient serpent. And all throughout Scripture, it's acknowledged that this serpent was somehow under the control of or in relationship with the devil himself. And I don't know how closely related the devil and this serpent were at this moment, but somehow there was a partnership or a connection. And the cunningness of the serpent brings forth a insidious question. Look at it in verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first thing I want you to notice about this question is who he addressed it to. He addressed this question to Eve, not to Adam. Now God had created Adam first. And then woman, Eve, had come from his side. They were co-equal. They were completing each other, compliments to each other in a perfect way. But Adam was called to be the leader of this relationship that he was in with Eve as she operated as his perfect companion. And since that was the order that God has, had designed Adam leading this relationship, it's no surprise that when Satan comes along, his first move is to try to disrupt the order that God had designed by going straight to Eve, straight to the woman. He wanted to thwart God's plan. Now, later on, God is going to rebuke Adam for following his wife's leadership in eating of this fruit. But this was Satan's plan all along. Now, the other thing that I want you to notice is how he challenged God's word in this question he said to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His whole attempt was to plant a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Okay? Like I've been saying, God is good. God was good. The creation of God was good. But what Satan wanted Eve to begin thinking was that maybe God isn't good. You know, in- including his plan of provision for their lives you see what God had actually said was you may eat of every tree but there is one tree that you're not allowed to eat of okay that's way different than saying is it really true that you're not allowed to eat of every tree hey what Eve should have done is she should have responded and said to the serpent you got it all wrong God gave us every single tree there are like almost no limitations. We have close to total freedom to eat any piece of fruit that we desire. And there is one measly tree that we are not allowed to eat from. So when you say it like that, did God actually say, you shall not eat of every tree that's out there? You're trying to put a doubt in my mind. And that's what Satan wanted. Satan wanted God's people to doubt God's goodness. He wanted them to feel that God was restrictive, holding out on them. So he framed it in, the negative, in a negative way. He said, you can't eat of any tree. So let's read of Eve's response in verse two and three. It says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, I'm going to point out to you four crucial mistakes that Eve made in her response. The first one is this. The first one is that she responded to the serpent in the first place. (laughs) Okay, This was her first big mistake, talking to this snake. You should never get into a debate with someone so crafty as the devil himself. You shouldn't entertain thoughts that he's planning into your mind. What what should you do? What should she have done in this moment? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul says concerning the temptation towards sexual immorality, he says flee sexual immorality. Don't try to talk yourself out of it. Don't reason over it. Don't explain it. Just run away. You're too weak, so actually run. Actually flee. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says that we should take every thought captive to obey Christ. And this was one of those moments where this thought needed to be taken captive by getting out of that situation as quickly as possible. But that's not what Eve did. She responded. This was her first mistake. Look, when the tempter of your soul begins whispering into your ear, is God really all that good to you? When we sing as a church, you know, good, good father, And those doubts begin creeping into your mind. Is he really good to me? You have to resist and run from those thoughts. Satan is a liar. Satan is a deceiver. In those moments, look to the cross of Jesus. See the goodness of God in the blood of Jesus Christ. And know of the perpetual and immovable and unshakable and everlasting goodness of God. What he's given you, what he's prescribed for us, it is good. Always. Don't entertain the thoughts within or without that tell you that God is holding out on you. Don't listen to those voices. Okay, But that was her first mistake. The second one was that she minimized God's provision. God had told Adam that they were to freely eat of all the trees, uh, except for one tree, like I mentioned earlier. They were free. And except for one tree, every tree was there. Every tree was theirs. This was meant to signify radical and superabundant provision from God. But Eve took all the life and the promise and the generosity out of God's provision when she said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. It's like she's saying it in monotone. You know, like, you know, the trees are there, and God made them, and... It's no big deal, but he lets us eat from them kind of thing. Instead, she should have been freaking out. She should have just combated this lie by saying, no, you you have no idea. God is so good to us. He's built this amazing place for us. My family, we're going to live here for generations. This is God taking care of us, making a paradise for us so that we can enjoy him and he can enjoy us. But instead, she responded by minimizing, I think, God's provision. But she made another mistake. She made the prohibition that God gave more stringent than it actually was. Notice it there. She said that God told them not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in verse 3. Okay, had God ever said that? Had God ever said, don't touch the tree. No, God had just merely said, don't eat from that tree. The day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. But she added her own little thing. He, we're, we're not allowed to eat from it, and we're also not even allowed to touch it. You know what this is? This is the introduction of legalism into our world. She took something that God said, and she made it more severe, more strict than it had to be. And this mistake drives me crazy because I see it happen all the time amongst God's people. I think this kind of legalism holds people sometimes back from even receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus comes along and he offers mercy and grace, and then legalists come along and add to the gospel, and they turn good news into bad news. Look, the reality is, The disciple life of Jesus, it's hard enough without legalism. To take up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow after Jesus, it's hard enough without adding additional rules on top of the requirements of following after Jesus. It's the best life there is. It's a good life, but that doesn't mean that it's not difficult at times. So when legalism comes along and adds to God's word, and says things like, don't drink this, or don't listen to that music, or don't enjoy the simple pleasures of life, don't have fun, I think it is destructive. You know, we we have to recognize, of course, that there's an ample place in Scripture, places like Romans 14, for us to develop personal convictions that go beyond Scripture. So if you think that God is asking you to deny certain liberties, then go for it. You know, if you think he wants you to throw away your television, throw away your television. If you're never to drink a glass of wine, then never drink a glass of wine. If you're only to listen to worship music for the rest of your life, then only listen to worship music. If you're only to shop at thrift stores or you're only supposed to eat vegan, like, go for it. Do what you think the Lord is leading you to do. But do not take your personal convictions things that go above and beyond the demands of Scripture and tell others that they must adopt them. They don't have to adopt them. They have to obey the clear word of God, not your personal convictions. So I think here Eve is succumbing to that trap. She's making the word of God more stringent than it actually was. Because, you know, like I said, as a believer there's plenty that I cannot and will not do. So why should I add to the list? The disciple life of Jesus is is a hard enough path already. But the other mistake that Eve made is that she doubted or weakened the potential penalty for sin in her mind. Notice what she said there in verse uh, 3. I call this the New Eve version. She said, lest you die. As in, like, maybe we'll die. It might happen. If I eat this, one potential outcome is that I could die. It's a possibility. But God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what she was doing was lessening, weakening the potential penalty. And all these mistakes that she made stemmed from a lack of adherence to, allegiance to, or knowledge of God's word. She either didn't know what God had said very well or had forgotten what God had said, hadn't kept herself conscious of it, or had purposefully allowed herself to twist it to her own destruction. But weakness in the word is what led her into error. And this isn't just ignorance about Scripture that I'm talking about. It was a mentality. She came to God's word with doubts about God She didn't like what what he'd said, and she thought that he might be holding back from them. And with that mentality, she was sure to poke holes in his word. And as she messed with Scripture, she lost big time. This helps us prepare for what's coming in the rest of Genesis and through the rest of the Bible. if, If Eve's disaster was precipitated by her carelessness with God's word, then we would expect that the rest of the Bible, from chapter 3 onward, will be filled with examples of people who clung to the Word and were granted victory, who overcame in the face of temptation. And we should expect to find the rest of the Bible declare the importance of the Word to us. We should see the Scripture valued highly by God. And as you read the Bible, that's exactly what you find. One scholar said it this way, he said, the message to Israel and to all God's people should now be clear. A thorough knowledge of the word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. So trusting God, but also knowing and believing his word. These two things go together and help us to overcome the temptations that we're sure to face in life. Well, let's read what happens next in verse four and five. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now at this point, Satan has Eve right where he wants her. She was ready to be manipulated by his lies. Her heart had led her to believe that God was not as good as previously advertised. She'd begun thinking about God like a divine bully, demanding too much and unable to discipline like he'd promised. So the serpent just says to her, just suggests it, says it bold-facedly and clearly, you won't die. You will not surely die. He wasted no time, he mixed no words, and he lied straight to her face. He just said, you won't die, that's not guaranteed. The results that God said would come from disobedience will not come. God doesn't have that kind of power. Now Satan is a liar, we learn from Jesus. In John 8 verse 44, as if we didn't know it already by the time Jesus comes onto the scene. And one of the big lies from Satan is you can sin and get away with it. There are no real consequences for sin. And the crazy thing is after thousands of years of seeing the chaos and the pain that life outside of God's commandments produces, we still fall for this stupid lie. We still think so often I can do this sin And get away with it. The catastrophe, the consequences, they won't exist. I won't experience any kind of death at all. But disobedience brings death. And death, as we will see in this passage, has many different forms. Okay. After he lied about these consequences, Satan questioned God's motives. Look at, again, what he said in verse 5. He said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the crux of his whole argument, like we've been talking about all night tonight. He's he's saying, God is keeping the knowledge of good and evil from you. That knowledge is amazing. You should want that knowledge. God doesn't love you because if he loved you, he'd let you have that knowledge. His basic reasoning was this. God has kept good back from his people. I've been talking about this all night up to this point, but this is still the temptation today. We still wonder, has God given me everything that I need? Has God given me everything that is good? And is God's definition of good an accurate definition? This is what was happening in this moment. Before this moment, Adam and Eve never tried to decide for themselves what was good and evil. Instead, they would just ask God, God, is this good? God, is this good? God, is this evil? God, is that evil? God was the one who made the definitions of what is good and evil. He showed them what good looks like, but the tempter came along. Just like he comes to us and wants to make us question God's goodness, but also his ability to even decide what is good in the first place. He wants to make us think that we know better than God himself. This is why you see people twisting Scripture, taking its plain meaning and turning it around on its head to mean other things because it's a way of humans declaring, I know what is good better than what God knows or better than God himself. So when the woman, verse 6, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, the conversation concluded and the woman saw the tree in a whole new light. She just made a decision. And her decision is real simple in verse 6. The tree, it's good for food. And so now she's in charge. She's the one saying what is good. She's the one saying what is evil. God's declarations of what are good and evil don't matter to her anymore. She knew what was good for her. <clears throat> the serpent had awakened something inside of her. Now John said it like this in 1 John chapter 2. He said, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it seems like Eve fell prey to all three of those things that John mentions in 1 John chapter 2. She fell to the desires of the flesh when she saw that the tree was good for food. You know, she just looked at it, her flesh was drawn to it she fell to the desires of the eyes when she considered the tree a delight to the eyes and she fell to the pride of life when she thought the tree was to be desired to make one wise she she thought vain thoughts of herself and what i could become if i ate of this tree so having given herself to the temptation everything then just happens in rapid succession the time for the debate is over, the conversation's over, and the way Moses writes it, one action spills over to the next. She takes the fruit, she eats the fruit, she gives some to her husband who was with her, then he ate. It's like the first domino was pushed, and then rapidly everything else happens until quickly this couple that God made had eaten this forbidden fruit. And you probably notice this one little detail that kind of stands out as a shock to the reader as you're kind of going through the story. Her husband was with her. The whole time, Adam was there. If you get into the original Hebrew, actually, everything that is said before in the conversation is spoken in the plural. It's like he was listening in. But the Bible teaches that Adam was far from an innocent bystander. This is Paul's commentary on the event in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So Adam wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing in this this moment. He went right along with the temptation. He gave in. In other words, Adam acted with his eyes wide open. Rather than stand up and defend his bride, He acquiesced to rebellion against God. He didn't lead his wife like he should have. He didn't protect his wife like he should have, but instead followed her into error, and God's order was overturned, and chaos came into the world. Now, as a comparison to Adam, there's Jesus. Jesus is the better husband, amen? He's greater than Adam. Adam's sin led to unrighteousness for all of humanity, His own bride included Eve and beyond them. But Jesus' act of righteousness on the cross leads to perfection for all who believe in him, who become his bride by faith. Jesus is better than Adam. It says in Romans 5 verse 18 that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's Adam's sin. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. That's Jesus' work on the cross. And we talked about this recently at the beginning of our study of the book of Mark. When Jesus went out into the wilderness, it's the anti-garden of Eden. You know, he was out there starving after 40 days of fasting. Well, uh, Adam was completely full. Uh, Jesus was in the wild amongst the wild animals. Well, Adam was in a beautiful garden with animals Subservient to him or underneath him. Jesus was bombarded with the full force of Satan's temptations. All Adam had to deal with was a silly snake and he fell. And Jesus succeeded where Adam could not. Jesus leads his bride where Adam did not lead his into victory. Okay, let's read of the immediate results, though, of this catastrophic event in verse 7 and following. It says in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, Right, right away, man and woman were given the independence that they craved. They wanted to decide what was good and evil. They wanted to be independent from God. And right away, they got that independence. But it wasn't as great as they thought it was going to be. First of all, their eyes were both opened, and they realized they were awakened to the fact that they were naked. Previously, there was no shame in that, but now they're filled with shame. And their immediate response was to cover themselves. So they take these fig leaves and they make a little makeshift outfit for themselves. You know, the first clothing in human history. But it all happened because their innocence is gone. I want you to notice what's happening here. Their desire to be like God made them realize that they weren't even like each other. That's what's happening here. They, they look at each other. They realize we're different from each other. Their shame and embarrassment comes in, so they cover themselves. And that clothing that they made created a visible barrier for their naked flesh from their spouse's eyes. And that visible barrier was emblematic of the spiritual and emotional barrier that they put up that day. And men and women since that time have been putting up walls and barriers ever since. You see, they wanted independence but without God. And once they liberated themselves from God, they came into conflict with each other. This is part of the story of the human existence right now here on earth. Wanting independence, wanting utopia without God, but unable to find peace with each other no matter how hard we work for it. This is part of the reason our sin hurts those who are closest to us. When we sin, a barrier goes up and separation occurs. We have to remember this first result of their sin, conflict with each other. But let's move on and see another major Uh, result of their sin it says in verse 8 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you and he said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself okay if the first immediate result of their sin is that broken relationship with each other now we see another result of their sin was broken fellowship with God you know here's God in verse 8 it just portrays him as walking in the garden in the cool of the day it's kind of implied like this was a regular event you know just something that God would do he would come into the garden to hang out with his man with his woman, to spend time in their presence and for them to spend time with him. But instead of man appearing for fellowship with God, for conversation with God, the man and his wife hid themselves, it says in verse 8, from the presence of the Lord. And then this terrible line, it says there in verse 9, that God called out, where are you? It's one of the saddest lines in the whole Bible. Where are you? Where are you? Where have you run? What are you doing? Why have you left fellowship and friendship with me? Where have you gone? This is the heart of God. This is who God is. And throughout all of the Bible, you'll see this tone from God over and over again. Where are you going? Where are you? Why have you left me? Come, be in fellowship with me. But because they were made in God's image, this separation from him, it had catastrophic results. You see, we can't be everything we were intended to be when we disassociate from our maker. When we go our own way, when we become the definers of what's good and evil, it breaks us off from the very God who made us and from fellowship with him. And the reality is, is that friendship with God is our only true path to joy and satisfaction. Because he made us for relentless enjoyment of himself. So when we sin and break fellowship with him, wander from him, there's no chance we're going to be satisfied and, and, and fulfilled within our hearts. We have to remember this because Adam and Eve's actions in Genesis 2, if you actually think about it, What they did, excuse me, here in chapter three, what they did here in chapter three is actually celebrated by the culture and the society that we're living in right now. You could almost hear somebody cheering for what Adam and Eve did in this chapter in our modern world, saying things like, what they did was liberate themselves from God's harsh commands and laws. They entered into true paradise When they ditched the shackles of divinity, no more restrictions, no more laws. They found freedom for themselves. To many people in our culture, it was Adam and Eve's act of rebellion that made them human in the first place. But believers know the truth. They became less human when they walked away from God. Now Adam explained his actions like this. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, he had fear. He knew he was naked, so he hid from God. So let's read in verse 11 and see how God replies. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." So God asks Adam a ser- series of questions. He says, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree?" Okay? Not, neither of these questions mean that God doesn't know. Like he's like, "I don't know what happened." This is just God giving his man a chance like a good father would, to confess his sin. It's like a, like a father offering his child a chance to come clean, a chance to confess his crime. You know, by the way, I just should say it like this. And I hope it doesn't have to happen in your life. I hope it doesn't happen in your life, but there might be moments in your life where after a period of secret sin, you have an opportunity to come back into the light through confession. And the day will come, I'm fairly sure of it, where there will be a moment where you'll have a chance. You'll get caught in your sin. Someone will discover you. Uh, Something will be found out. And you'll have a chance. It's a little window. It's an opportunity. It's a moment to come completely clean and to totally confess all that you've done before God, before key people in your life, you'll have the chance to own up to what you've done and what you've been doing. But here's what happens to way too many people when that moment comes. In that moment, too many people excuse their sin, blame it on others, or fail to come completely clean. But every single thing you leave in the dark, it will be exposed It might be exposed on the day of the Lord, it might be exposed here in this life, but all too often I've watched someone confess part of their sin, the part that they think is safe, the part that they think is palatable to the people that they love, but their fear keeps them from confessing their whole sin. And it just breaks everyone's heart once the full story comes out and is revealed later. And what they've done in that moment is they've compounded their sin with more sin, with lies, which leads to even more distrust. So I'm just exhorting you, when and if the time comes, confess everything. Get it all out on the table. Let it all be known. Okay, but, but Adam's response, though, is classic. You know, it's just a classic blame-shifting party that Adam and Eve just get into. First of all, Adam blames it on the woman. You see that there in verse 12? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Okay, so you got the first marital fight, or tiff, here in verse 12. And then, not only did he blame his wife, but he also blamed God. He, he, he refers to Eve as the woman you gave me. <laughs> you know, like... She's a dud. <laughs> okay, then Eve, what does she do? She blames it on the serpent. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, and then that's where the excuses and the blame shifting end because the serpent, you know, Satan, he's got no problem being the instigator of the whole thing. He's like, yeah, I did that, you know, kind of thing. Okay, But I want you to notice something. They blamed whoever they could. They blamed whoever they could. For Adam, there was no one else on earth except his wife and God. He knew two people. He knew his wife and he knew the person of God himself. And he blamed those two people for his actions. He literally thought it was everyone else's fault. Okay, rather than take ownership of his sin, he pinned the blame for his failures upon other people. Okay, this is one of those disastrous byproducts of the fall of man. We love to blame others for the way that we are. So we blame parents, we blame teachers, we blame other authority figures. And there's whole methodologies of counseling that are built on this premise. You know, someone else must be the reason you are who you are. So let's dig into the past. Let's find out who did what to you. Let's find out who is to blame. But in Christ, you know what we can do? We can run toward the blame. I think it's Tim Keller who says, you know, the gospel shows me that I'm worse than I ever imagined. But I'm more loved than I ever dreamed. You see, as a believer, I can say, yeah, I'm a great sinner. But I have a great Savior. And there are a thousand things wrong with me. And maybe there have been people or circumstances in my life who have helped draw those things out of me. But they're my flaws. They're in me. But beautifully by His grace and His mercy, we can embark on the path of healing in Jesus. But it's crucial for us to accept responsibility for ourselves. Okay, now the Lord responds in verse 14 with what many theologians have called the curse. This is what we're living under. He said in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay. God starts with the serpent. Uh, After he talks to the serpent, he's going to then address the woman and then he's going to address the man or Eve and then Adam. But in talking to the snake, he says, look, you did all this. Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you'll go and and the dust... You shall eat all the days of your life. Okay, in verse fifteen, it seems clear that God is addressing the devil himself. But in verse fourteen, he addresses the serpent who was in partnership with the devil, and he tells him that he would crawl on his belly and lick up the dust of the earth uh, for the rest of you know our experience here on this planet. Okay, now I don't think that this necessarily means that the serpent before this moment was a, a legged creature, you know, that God now zaps him and takes away his legs, and now he's going to crawl on his belly. The, the text allows for that. It could mean that, potentially. Uh, but I think if many of us, if we could just, you know, I'm creeped out by snakes. I don't like snakes at all. You know, people have a pet snake and they're like, you want to hold it? I'm like, why would I ever want to do that? That just grossed me out. I was never one of those little boys that like, like catching lizards and snakes and stuff like that. I was never one of those guys. I'm creeped out by them. But if you just stop for a second and think about what they are, it's pretty, it's a pretty marvelous and incredible mode of transportation that they have, right? I mean, it's just like, God is so inventive and creative that he would make a species that travels like that. It's just amazing. So, for me at least, I have my suspicions that something changed in the serpent's body at this point. Uh, To me, I think it seems that the fact that serpents crawl on their bellies, now from this point forward, it has a new meaning. Uh, Like when we get to the flood in Noah's day, after the flood is over with, rainbows are going to have a special significance to God and to humanity, or at least they're supposed to, and it's supposed to be a sign that God is not going to judge the world in that same fashion or way or means by a flood ever again. But if there was a rainbow before the flood, and I don't know that there was, but if there was, it wouldn't have had that significance. And so I wonder if the same thing is happening here, that this serpent now, who always was on his belly from creation forward, now it's meant to remind us of the curse that God declared on the earth. And I even wonder if that phobia that I just mentioned, which I think is pretty widespread amongst lots of human beings, has actually been caused by this curse from God, you know some kind of thing that just causes us to be a little repulsed by snakes in general, and helps us remember uh, this curse from Genesis chapter three. So maybe you're supposed to see a snake, get creeped out, and remember the fall. <laughs> okay, but but he also said in verse fifteen, "I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring." Okay, this reads like something much bigger than some kind of everlasting war between snakes and humans. Okay, It reads like a, like, doesn't it sound like this? Doesn't it sound like a new and perpetual war between our species and the devil's forces? You know, that, that we're at war against him and he's at war against us. That there's just an enmity between human beings and this dark spiritual dimension. And and without Jesus, it's a battle, frankly, that we just lose in a bad way. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2, that we, before Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which we once walked in. We followed the course of this world, and we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were just dead in our sins. We were following the way of this world. We were following the principalities and powers of darkness. So this is what Adam's sin introduced, a kind of like a new world order. You had the garden, but now there's a war. Enmity will exist. And he talks about Eve's offspring. That's us. We're drafted into this conflict. There's no way out. Or maybe there is. Because in verse 15, God hints at the promise of the gospel. He says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, the idea is that though the serpent will hurt the offspring of Eve, he, the offspring of Eve, will win the victory because he will bruise Satan's head. In other words, the head injury is greater than the heel injury. The head injury defeats the heel injury. And notice the the promise. It ditches the idea of war between Satan's team and humanity because there's a shift in the language. Look at how it says it. It's a singular descendant of Eve. It doesn't say that we will bruise your head and you shall bruise our heel. It says he, he will do this. This is widely considered the first implied mention of the gospel after the fall of humanity. Man sinned, and now God says, a day is coming when one of Eve's sons will bruise the head of the serpent. Though Satan has greatly hurt humanity, and though he insidiously moved the perpetrators of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is the one who wins the final victory and delivers the fatal blow. Like Colossians 2 verse 15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and principalities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And this little verse now becomes, listen to me now, the central theme of the Bible. Satan is warring against humanity, a struggle exists between good and evil, and We'll see it in the very next chapter when Cain kills his brother. Satan is going to win all these little battles. He's going to keep on bruising our heel. But throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, Christ prepares to come. And on the cross, Jesus delivers the blow which crushes Satan. And so we're awaiting now his return and the full experience of that ultimate victory of Jesus. Now the text goes on in verse 16 and it says to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So he's addressed the serpent, now he address, addresses Eve, addresses uh, the woman. And this is regarded as a curse that's pronounced upon uh, womankind. So besides the satanic war against her offspring, the woman, it says, would have multiplied pain and childbearing in verse 16. And he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. Okay. This might signify the way that birth would have worked had sin not cast its spell upon the world. That maybe pregnancy and birth without sin and brokenness would have been pain-free Experiences. So, if you, some of you women weren't mad at Adam before this, maybe now you're like really mad at, at him. Okay, but but that's not the case in our current world, right? It's not a pain-free experience. Any woman who's endured labor pains or anyone else who's witnessed that knows that it's a grueling experience. You know, I maybe you've ever had that awkward moment where. A woman is talking about the pain of childbirth and there's a man, maybe her own husband there, and he tries comparing it to some pain that he's gone through in life. Just never do that. Just stop talking, walk away. It can't compare, okay? Okay. But the pain that he's talking about, it actually might extend beyond physical pain for a woman. The physical pain of pregnancy or the physical pain of labor into emotional pain also. Uh, Maybe through postpartum depression or the inner angst that mothers endure for their children uh, or also the physical pains of pregnancy and labor. Women all over the world have endured the adverse effects of the fall. But as with the curse against the serpent, there's a little bit of hope. You know, because in labor, the pain of birth is one thing, but isn't there hope? There's hope of a child being born. And perhaps the pain of childbirth is meant to remind humanity that the pains of this life can, if we allow Jesus to redeem them, work something wonderful for us. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 22 and 23, that we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Or Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He said this light momentary affliction that he was enduring, he said it's preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. So that pain in childbirth that had the hope of a child being born can, for a believer, uh, be emblematic of the hope that the ill effects of the fall can produce something beautiful, whether it's God's forever kingdom, or even as we go through trials here on earth, that they can produce God's holiness in our lives. So maybe for that, what you would imagine or envision is the product of holiness Imagine a child walking around, running around, healthy, smiling, glad, happy. There was pain that was involved to get that child. And when you see someone who's holy, who's at peace, who has joy, who's evangelistically inclined, when you see this fruit coming out of their lives, what you have to understand is there was some kind of pain, more than likely, that helped produce that beautiful work uh, of God in their lives. Okay, but God also said in verse 16 something else to the woman. He said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, I want to talk about this for a second. This is not a reference to the natural relationship that man and woman were supposed to have. Okay, the word rule there in verse 16, it means much more than leadership. Okay, Adam was supposed to lead Eve and and be a servant leader in his home, but rulership is a harsher word than leadership. This is not a reference to verses like 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, where Paul says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is not an Old Testament description of that kind of order in a home. Now instead, What's happening here is because sin entered the, world, entered the world and death spread to everyone, women would find the world a difficult place to exist. Adam and Eve were supposed to live in a harmonious partnership with God-defined roles and mutual respect. But the fall introduced a battle between the genders. And it's a battle that nobody wins, but women especially it's saying here, throughout human history, have felt its weight. And, you know, even in our Western world, where feminism has combated inequality between the genders, the, res- the results of a Western version of feminism or modern feminism, the results are suspect. You know, we have things like the carnage of abortion that are directly tied to the more recent iter- iterations of feminism. Or the sexual revolution that's also tied to the modern iteration of feminism. If you really think about it, the sexual revolution has likely given many men what they always wanted. Commitment-free sex under the guise of the virtue of liberating women. It's a sad state that we've created. But Listen to me now. Legitimate and true Christianity. The gospel It's what actually destroys the marginalization of women that traditional cultures might ascribe. It was radical for Christians when they came onto the scene to introduce and practice a way of life where women had equal status before God. And Christians played an important role in the first waves of Modern feminism, helping to win the right to vote and inherit land and things like that because of our moral framework, what we believed about God and his word and the way he's created us. You see, the reality is that you cannot get the philosophical or moral framework for the equal treatment of all people from an atheistic worldview. You just can't. Many have tried to argue for it, but many others have given up even trying to say that atheism logically concludes that we should treat all human beings regardless of their strength, their ability, their mental clarity, that we should treat them all equally. No, atheism cannot teach that. The survival of the fittest will devalue the lives of some while promoting and valuing the lives of others. Now, the very underpinnings of any movement which honors all of human life It goes back to Jesus. You see, the idea that men and women are equal is not a feminist idea. It's a Christian idea. We know that men and women are equal. We've both been designed by God. We're both one in Christ Jesus. An author named Rebecca Merkel wrote an article at DesiringGod.org, and I'd like to just read a few things that she says on this subject. She said, so what's wrong with feminism? Honestly, much of it comes down to a fight over definitions. What does equal really mean? Does it mean the same? A Christian believes that men and women are different from each other, with different strengths, different abilities, and different tasks. We don't believe that this difference implies inequality. A feminist, on the other hand, believes that true equality cannot be achieved without sameness. We believe that women are different than men and therefore have to be held up to the standards of what makes an excellent woman, judged on our own terms. A high-achieving, admirable woman looks different than a high-achieving, admirable man. And she is going to accomplish different things. We Christians, particularly Christian women, need to fight harder to recapture the idea of feminine excellence. Too often in the name of conservatism, We have bought into the stereotype and embraced the helpless, soft, little woman persona, thinking that's what it looks like to be feminine. But we need to study our Bibles and learn to embody virtue like women, obedience like women, ambition like women, wisdom like women, courage like women, faithfulness like women, strength like women. And the reason I read those quotes and share all this is because our response to this portion of the curse should be the gospel, not new wave feminism. We must, turn our back, uh, we must turn back to the scripture for its definitions of male and female and our oneness in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's move on to see what God said to the man. In verse 17, he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to the dust you shall return. Like I mentioned earlier, God rebuked Adam because he listened to the voice of his wife. He sinned by eating of the tree which God told him to avoid. And God held Adam responsible for his own decisions. didn't matter that Eve had handed him the fruit. He was responsible for himself. He knew better. And resultantly, notice in verse 17, it says that the ground was cursed. Now, in Genesis 2, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Adam was called to tend the ground. So he had a job. It's not that in paradise there's no work, and now there's work after the curse. The difference, though, is that the thorns and thistles were apparently not part of God's original design, and they began to develop. In other words, Adam's work before the fall was a seamless and always fruitful experience. But after the fall, he'd have to sweat to eat bread. And his sweat would last all life long until, verse 19, he returned to the very ground that he was cultivating. Now, like I said, in Eden, creation worked in harmony with Adam. Dominion was easy for him to live out. Remember, God gave him the job to name all the animals, and it's like, they just kind of came, and he names them. Everything's just working out easily for him. He's eating the fruit that is being produced, But here, after the curse, the very soil rebels against man. He can't even get the soil to easily or quickly subjugate itself to him. He can't even have dominion over the dirt, is what God is is saying. He has to sweat to get a crop. And it's crazy, because even today, with all our scientific advancements, we still can't control the dirt. We still can't control nature. Droughts and pestilence, they plague us. We work hard for the little control that we do have, but we're mostly at the mercy of the natural world that we live in. And almost everyone who's walked the earth has discovered the pain of this part of the curse. We labor and we toil to try to stay afloat, to make ends meet, and it seems like it's just never enough. And on top of all this, this, death became an inevitable reality. God said in verse 19, You are dust, and to the dust you shall return. This is meant to be the worst part of the curse. But at the same time, it's also, in a sense, the greatest blessing that's found inside of the curse. Because it's through death, if you're a believer, that you escape the grip of this curse and live in God's paradise forever. So all these curses, they're statements concerning how life now is. And I wanted to say this because some people have thought of these curses as commands that we are to somehow obey. For instance, it's not wrong for a woman to try to avoid pain in childbearing. Or for a couple to try to figure out ways to mutually love and respect each other or for workers to plan ways to make their work less difficult, less burdensome. We're not supposed to just say, well, that's the way it is. This is the fall. We just have to do this. We're going to hate each other. We're going to you know, have a hard time at work. No, we can try to make life a better place. The point is not that we must obey the curse, but that we will continually be fighting against it. It's just there. It's plaguing us to the very end. And we know this to be true. No matter how much society advances, we can't get rid of male dominion, harsh labor conditions, pain in birth, famine, and we can't get rid of death. Everybody dies. We work hard to mitigate all these things, but they're always there. But it's through Jesus that this whole curse is abolished. He became cursed for us on the cross when he sweat those great drops of blood, when he wore the crown of thorns, when he suffered the agony of the cross, he was taking the curse into his own body there upon the cross. And if we believe in him, a moment comes where every tear is wiped away and we no longer exist under this curse. Now in verse 20, there's a few after effects of this curse before we can wrap up the chapter. So let's read the rest of the chapter together. Starting in verse 20, he says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, This is actually a little bit of a hopeful word from Adam in the midst of all this. He gets this terrible news, this chaos, this curse has been pronounced. But he names her, his wife, he names her Eve, uh, which literally means living. So it's like he believed that she will be the mother of all living human beings from this point forward. It's like Adam had faith. You know, He, he knew we're going to die, but our, our species, we're going to live. God is still going to work. He, he believed that life was required if God would fulfill his promise. I mean, God had said that a descendant of Eve would rise up and crush Satan's head. And so here... He names her the mother of all living because he believes that descendant is going to come somehow, some way through our relationship and from my wife. It's like he's accepting the chaos of the world. He's accepting the brokenness of the world, and he's realizing his own part in it, but he's also at the same time saying, I'm going to move forward with God. God has a plan. God has something he's going to do. He's going to redeem all this, and I believe him and the Lord God, verse 21, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, the, the, the garments of fig leaves were not sufficient, so the Lord made these skins, uh, garments out of animal skins uh, for them. A lot of people have pointed out that this clothing for Adam and Eve cost the lives of animals. They had to be covered Adam and Eve did. So God took care of the responsibilities, the responsibility, and animals died. Blood was shed in order for them to be physically covered. But listen to what is said in Hebrews 9, verse 22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And many have pointed to this as one of the earlier examples of that, that blood had to be shed in order for sin to be covered or forgiven. And there seems to be a little bit of anticipation in this death of these animals, uh, of the sacrificial system that Israel will engage with, which we'll get into in a year or two once we get into Exodus and Leviticus. Okay, At the close of our chapter, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is an interesting element. Uh, The interesting element inside this little paragraph is the tree of life. Notice there's a suggestion from God. He says, you know, if, if man is able to eat from the tree of life, he'll live forever. We don't know a lot about the tree of life. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. You can read about it again in the, at the end of the Bible. It kind of bookends all of Scripture. It appears in God's paradise, the new uh, Jerusalem, uh, by the throne of God. And it bears fruit every single month. And it's there for the healing of the nations, it says in Revelation chapter 22. But even though it's mentioned here and, and at the end of the Bible, The tree of life is never really fully explained in Scripture. Uh, But the idea here is that to banish us from contact with the tree of life, uh, it seems to be a gracious move on God's part. He didn't want us to live forever in the broken, fallen state. He wanted us to be able to to have newness of life forever uh, with Him. Now some have thought that the, this means then that the tree of life must have been some kind of like uh, Indiana Jones Ho- Holy Grail kind of thing. Like you eat one bite of the tree, fruit of the tree of life and you'll live forever. I think it's more likely that this was sustenance that if you were continually eating it and continually had access to it, you would then live forever and God didn't want people to live forever in this broken state and so he banished the Adam and Eve from the garden and sealed off the entrance to the garden with some cherubim in verse 24 who had a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life now cherubim is just plural for cherub which is a type of angel that the people of Israel would learn about later Uh, in their journey in the wilderness. It would actually be involved in the construction of their tabernacle, be uh, engraved or formed in gold on the uh, lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But here they're not images, they're actually there. And they've got these flaming swords, and so Adam could not pass that way and go into the Garden of Eden. So the stage here is set, you guys. this This is the... what the rest of the Bible is going to be about. God's going to work hard to make a way for humankind to experience a new existence with Him. He's going to turn the whole course of human history to make a way for a new and unbroken, sinless creation. And we're going to see kind of one phase of it in the flood which will kind of produce like a second creation, so to speak, a second Adam in Noah and his family. Uh, But that won't be the answer. And all throughout the course of biblical history, we see that different leaders would rise up, different figures would rise up, but they would all be pointing forward to the ultimate figure, Jesus, who would be the one to make the way to provide the new paradise for his people who believe in him.